finished a couple of verses of Second John. It actually was really hard for me to not do that. But a big part of me also wanted to share a message to celebrate the time of year that we're in, too. And so that won out. And we'll have to just wait on, it'll be a few weeks before we'll finish the book of Second John, but it's just there dangling out there. There's not, there's not much there. It's just two relatively short verses, but we'll finish that up in the new year, it looks like. But in terms of celebrating the reason for the season, the title of this morning's sermon is Joy to the World. Joy to the World. And this is one of the most famous Christmas songs. And when you think about the sentiment behind it, joy to the world, just take that simple statement, joy to the world. That's such a nice sentiment. As you sit in your seat, you couldn't help maybe but think, who wouldn't want some joy in this world? Why wouldn't that be a favorite song to say joy to the world? What a great thing to wish for or hope for. There's certainly plenty of sadness in this world. There's certainly plenty of despair, difficulty, There's plenty of darkness to go around. So when you look at the world around, you could honestly say, man, this world could use a little bit more joy, some real joy. And when you think about joy to the world, mankind should be quick to embrace any cause for happiness or celebration. If somebody was going to say, here's a cause for joy in this world, a world that seems dark, especially for those who don't know the Lord, but even for those who do know the Lord, when, when we're surrounded by difficult circumstances, trials, challenges that come up in our life, physical ailments, spiritual ailments, relationship difficulties, financial difficulties, the life that we live here in a sin-cursed world with sin natures is hard at times. In fact, Jesus said that it would be that way, that you will have trials in this life. But there's cause for joy in a relationship with him. And ultimately, that's what the song is speaking of, joy to the world. But that joy didn't just appear spontaneously. It didn't just show up. The world wasn't filled with joy all of a sudden without cause or any provocation. Joy came to the world for a very specific reason. That's what brought joy to the world. And the song goes on to say, joy to the world, the Lord has come is come. See, joy's coming to the earth was the direct result of a specific event. It wasn't just something random that happened where one day the world had a lack of happiness in a real eternal sense and then all of a sudden there was this joy that sprung onto the scene that came to the world. It's that the Lord has come was the cause for that particular joy. Now, man had already, of course, had cause for joy in terms of access to a relationship with the God of the universe. Man already had cause for joy as he celebrated God's provision to deal with his sinfulness. Man already had the opportunity to have a walk of faith, a life of faith, as he looked forward to the day when God would provide a final solution to deal with the effect of his sin, the penalty of his sin. He symbolized that and celebrated that in a number of different ways, primarily through, though, the animal sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And he pictured that one day there would be permanent solution to man's sin as there would be a Messiah or a Savior who would come. And that's what man was looking forward to. So did that give him 
some optimism, some hope, as he went through life trusting God, taking God at his word, responding to God's truth in his life? Did he have the opportunity then in a relationship with the God of the universe to experience God's peace, God's contentment, God's joy, God's direction for his life? Yeah, absolutely. But this was the culmination of all that, a celebration of which there, should, there never could be anything to compare it to, the celebration that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was finally here. All of this symbolism, all of this foreshadowing now came to a peak. And as you think of even, if you think of the Bible even as a book that one would read, they would start at the beginning, they'd work their way through it. There was one author, God wrote this story to mankind, but he he did it in a way where it would build up to, it would foreshadow, it would build up to a climax though. And so not everything is revealed at once. A little bit builds on a little bit. A little bit more builds on a little bit. That's why as you read it, more and more of it will build on the next thing. And pretty soon by the time you come to this part, the New Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospels, they start with the coming of the Savior. The King is here, if you're thinking about it from a Jewish perspective. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, the suffering servant is here, if you're thinking about it in terms of the redemption of mankind. But it all builds to that point. That's why by reading it that way, it'll make a little bit more sense when you get to that climax that, oh, this is what this was all pointing to. That's what, that way, even the New Testament authors, as they look backwards, things that weren't all that clear Now it looks a lot more clear because they know what that was talking about, what that was pointing to, what that was hinting at, what that was foreshadowing. It all makes sense now when you look backward. But in any event, this was the climax of human history. This This was the climax of the biblical account that the Savior was here. And so joy to the world. The Lord is come. So after hearing this, a few questions naturally come to mind. This is the proclamation that is made in God's word. The reason for joy, the primary reason for to celebrate even in this time of year. The reason for that is that the Lord has come. And so that naturally, again, we're going to jump through and read through, go through a few different questions that somebody might have as they hear that. Let's start with this first one, though. Who says... The Lord's coming brought great joy to all people or will bring great joy to all people. Who says so? You know, oftentimes when you're dealing with young people and you tell them anything, state any kind of a fact, oftentimes when they're in a rebellious state in in life, not all of them are at the same time, but even a period of inquisitiveness, they would say, says who? Who says so? So joy to the world, the Lord has come. Well, why is that cause for happiness and celebration? Who says so? Well, in this case, the answer is God says so. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to pick up this part of the Christmas story. God is the one who says so. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. Now, for the context, Jesus has already been born. He's now wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's laying in a manger. He's in a place of humility. There's no pomp and circumstances. Nobody has rolled out the red carpet. There isn't, official, there isn't an official delegation of all the royalty in the area to welcome him. He's been born in a stable with animals around him. Now that's all an assumption. They perhaps weren't even around him, but for the sake of our normal view of the nativity scene, it's a humble state regardless of how you look at it. 
So we pick up in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. So before we go much farther with it, let's just stop there. The Lord said so. He said that there was joy that was brought to the world because of the birth of the Lord. Now, he told that or communicated that message to somebody, and we see that here in verse 8. He selected this group of individuals to be informed about Christ's birth. Now, you can ask why. You can keep on asking why. Because there's no answer that I can give you per se. People have speculated to a number of different possible reasons for that. Some have said that because these shepherds were likely associated with raising the sheep that were used in the Passover or temple sacrifices, that it was appropriate then that they would have a greater understanding of this idea that there was a picture of an innocent taking the place of the guilty, of one that a substitution taking place where one person's iniquity and guilt and sin was transferred to another so that one would die in the place of the other and the other could go free, but that didn't mean that there was no cost. The cost that was involved in your freedom was the death of a substitute in your place. And so they would have understood that symbolism perhaps better than any as they were the ones raising those sheep that were then used for the temple sacrifice. Now, there's nothing in the Word of God that says that specifically. That's pure that's pure speculation, but it's speculation that's based on perhaps a few details that we'll get into in a second. These shepherds lived only, this area was about five miles away from Jerusalem. So if they were that close to Jerusalem, the historical researchers that have looked into this said that they had to then be involved in raising sheep for sacrificial use in Jerusalem because the only pasture lands that were within that proximity to the temple of Jerusalem were reserved for that purpose. Now, can I, do I know that for a fact? No. Uh, am I some sort of a historical scholar? No, I'm just telling you what I've read, that that is why there's this assumption made that these individuals, these particular shepherds, they would have been especially aware of and involved in the raising of the sheep that would go to ultimately be sacrificed in the place of guilty sinners. And so to come to them, you can see now that there's quite a connection there that might be made in their own minds where they would have that understanding maybe to a greater extent than the average person would have. But there's no reason to be dogmatic about it or, or even to be, uh, be guessing at it. But that's perhaps a reason that he chose to communicate this message of hope, this message of joy. Joy has come to the world. There's cause for celebration and happiness such as, such as there's never been before. And to come to these individuals to tell them that, I will say this, they certainly did respond to it, we'll see in a second. They certainly did understand why this was a cause for celebration. The the question is, by the end of this message, will we have a better understanding of why is this cause for celebration? This time of the year where we celebrate that joy has come to the world because of the Lord Jesus Christ having been born. Now, we saw in verse 9 there, we'll read it again, but God spoke through the proclamation of an angel. So when he delivered this message that joy has come to the world and it's because the Lord has come. 
He said that through angels. So there was an angel. So it starts with an angel, moves to many angels. But an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord accompanied that, shone all around them. All around them. And they were greatly afraid. Now what was the good news then that was delivered? What was the cause for happiness and celebration? What was the proclamation or message that mankind should respond to with a sense of, le- with a sense of leaping joy and excitement? We'll pick that up in verse 10. Verse 10 says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Here it is. I forgot to put it up there in case you don't have a Bible with you this morning. So that's the message right there. I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. There's no need for fear. This is a time of celebration. This is something to be leaping out of your shoes with joy for. So if you're going to paraphrase that, it'd just be, do not be afraid. I bring you good and joyful news. This is something that is going to be worth celebrating. But one thing I want you to note here from this ninth verse here, as we, or the tenth verse here, there's this very personal aspect to this proclamation. It's very personalized. You know, very often we have a sense that God is sort of wispy. God is hard to get a hold of, and at times he can be in our thinking. Uh, but God is more general and generic. He's the ruler of of all. He's the king over all. He is a, a sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful. He's everywhere at the same time kind of God. He's an eternal God. In some ways, that's very difficult to relate to, and I've spoken on that before, because that's nothing like you and I. He's also never changes. He's always truthful. He's always just and fair. Again, nothing that we can relate to in any tangible way. So, without If we're not careful, we'll keep God kind of at arm's length. We'll see him as distant and far away. But yet, the more you read your Bible, the more you study the pages from the beginning to the end, it includes all of this discussion about individual people and how God related to them on a personal level. So if you keep God at arm's length and you don't see him as your God, you don't see him in a personal way, you're never going to experience the life of faith that God desires you to have. You're never going to grow to have that intimacy and closeness with him that you should have, that God wants you to have. Now, I just want you to see the intimacy here and the personal nature of this. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. I brought this message to you specifically. I'm speaking to you specifically. He's not just announcing this in a more general sense. He's saying this in a very specific sense to a very specific group of individuals. Now, how many were there? Who knows? But there's this idea that God, the God of the universe, communicates this message of good tidings, this message of celebration, this this message of happiness and joy, to very specific people, not just generally proclaiming it to the world in general. We'll get into it more because you can see that throughout this. So if you continue, so there, I bring you good and joyful news and there is born to you 
there is born to you in verse 11. Let's pick it up there. There is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here we have it again. And this will be a sign to you. Then you have you again. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And then we have this magnificent sort of crescendo to this whole event. And suddenly there was with the angel, singular, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God is for mankind. He's not against mankind. His message to mankind is a message of love, a message of hope, a message of rescue, a message that there's a future to be had with him. It's not a message of judgment and condemnation, though that is the result that will face you if you reject him. You choose not to accept his gift, choose to stiff arm his love, choose to rebel against and operate in independence from his provision for you. But that's not, that wasn't God's mentality towards mankind. He loved mankind. He was 100% for them. He was never against them. Every step he took was to restore and reconcile man to himself after, even after man chose Satan's lies over his truth. Now imagine that you had created this perfect thing, this perfect world, but you had done it with a, also at the same time offering an, an alternative not that you created the alternative, but you made it, you allowed it to be available. You allowed free will to exist so that man, if they chose to live life with you, chose to have a relationship with you, chose to trust you, chose to depend on you, that it would actually be something that could actually bring you joy and happiness because they weren't forced to do that. Of their own volition, they were choosing that. And doesn't it feel good when somebody chooses you? Some of you are wishing you hadn't been chosen, but for, for the rest of you, doesn't it feel good when somebody wants you, when you're desired, when they choose to live life with you? They could choose to do their own thing or they could choose to spend their time with anyone else or on their own, but they choose, they, they willingly and volitionally choose to spend life with you, to invest the substance of their life, the minutes of their life with you, Doesn't it feel good to be loved on a human level? Anybody who hates being loved? No hands. So God, he saw that too. He he was glorified by man wanting and choosing to spend life with him, to be near to him, to trust him. But man doesn't always, didn't always make that decision. And so they chose Satan's lies over God's truth, at least in that moment. Now God in his love, though, he didn't just give up on mankind. He loved them anyway. And so then he put in motion a plan of redemption, a plan of rescue, a plan of reconciliation, a plan that would involve propitiation, a substitutionary payment being made on behalf of the debt that was owed by each Man, woman, and child on planet earth was a debt that was owed, which was death, eternal separation from God as a result of their sinfulness. He put in place and put in motion a plan to fix that, to restore that. And you can read about that plan for the majority of the Bible up to the culmination of Christ's death. But then even then you see that God has a plan to make everything right 
And so the rest of the story is about this age of grace, this church age that we're in here, but that culminates ultimately with God fixing it all, once and for all. And so that is the story of the, the Bible, and God never gave up on, on people. See, he's, he loves people, and he's for people. So I hope you see that even when you hear this. There's no reason to be afraid. I'm bringing you good tidings of great joy, and it'll be to all people. And so then he, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. That's God's disposition towards mankind. And I think when you hear a message that talks or focuses more on God's anger, you know, sinners at the hands of an angry God. A famous, a famous Puritan message that was given early in our nation's history. Actually, long, actually before this was a nation. That's not the kind of God we have. we have. We are sinners that are under God's wrath and judgment. In that sense, we were. But we're sinners who God was desperately in his love seeking to find a way to redeem, to rescue, to restore. That's very different than seeing God as angry at mankind. God is not angry at mankind. And so then you continue with our story here. This is going to be the good news. You're going to have this baby that is found that is the Savior of the world. He's born to you. It's cause for great celebration. There's no reason to be afraid. It's good and joyful news. And I'm giving you this invitation here, though, to respond in faith to this news that I'm giving you. What I mean by that is, why did God not end this message with by telling the shepherds that I just want you to know that today there has been born a Savior. The Savior has come to the world. The Lord has come. And that's a great cause for celebration. And then off into the night, the angels would go. You see, there's much more to it than that. He goes through the trouble, the angels go through the trouble of explaining to the shepherds where they can find this Savior. Now, you could easily read past this part of the story and not see the significance of it. The significance of it is that God is giving mankind his truth. And he's giving them an opportunity when it relates to the Savior. He's inviting them to respond to that truth in faith. To want to effectively ask themselves, I want to learn more about this. I want to know more about this. And so he gives them more information about where they can find this Savior, leaving the ball in their court? Are they going to respond to that message in faith or are they not? Now, if they didn't believe God's message, would they have gone to seek out the Savior? You see, going to seek out the Savior, going to worship the Savior, then celebrating his birth thereafter, which we'll get to, it showed that God had offered them an opportunity to respond to his truth, just like he's offered every man from the very beginning and will offer every man to the very end the opportunity to respond to his truth. Now, the amount of truth that man, each man in each different place had, it's different. But as God reveals himself self to people, he's effectively saying, will you trust me? Will you accept this by faith? Will you respond in faith to what I want to show you or what I have to tell you. And so he says, this will be a sign to you. I'll prove that what I'm saying is true. You'll actually be able to go and find this Savior 
in physical form, the unique God band, Emmanuel, God with us. And so you see a continuation of this personalized message. I already talked about that. You see you used twice again. But if you're going to rephrase this section from 11 through 14, you'd effectively say, come and see what God has done. There's great cause for joy and celebration because the Lord has come. Now come and see for yourself. Come and see what God has done for yourself. It's a personal invitation to respond in faith. That's the same invitation that God makes to you. Every person on earth, every man, woman, and child, the Savior has come. Come and see for yourself. Put your own trust and confidence in that. See, the mere knowledge that Christ was born, that's history. That can't save anybody. What saves man is responding in faith, deciding to accept and trust. Put all of your eggs in one basket. Put your confidence in what Christ has done for you. And by doing that, you're responding to that message of hope, that message of joy, that message of peace, that message of rescue that God alone can provide. But God doesn't make people respond to that message. He didn't make the shepherds respond to this message, but it's fun to see that they did. It's encouraging to see that they did. So how did they respond to this news? Well, the shepherds were blown away by God's message. I assume they were blown away by the angelic means by which it was delivered too. Imagine that this is how this news was communicated to you. You know, in our day, you got a boring preacher like me communicating this news to you. But the heavenly hosts were filled with those praising God And saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. This is glad tidings or good tidings of great joy. And it's going to be joyful for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. Now imagine that being said the way it was said. That had to have had an amazing impact on them. But even though they were maybe amazed by that message. Even though they were maybe touched by that message. Even though it may be interested or piqued their curiosity a little bit, they still had a choice to make. Trust God and go check it out or reject God's message. That was the two choices. And they chose to trust God. Let's pick up our story in verse 15. So in verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. You see, they don't even need to see it to have been convinced it's true because they trusted God already. That's just as an aside. You see the certainty in that language? They say it's already come to pass and God has already made it known to us. See, that's why God can say it's good that you believe having seen, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen. You can believe in what God says and his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, in his promises, you can believe in them even without seeing them. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They believed this and they also went and checked it out at the same time. It's kind of both, both at once. And they came with haste And they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. Isn't it awesome when you trust God, take him at his word, and then he confirms the reasonableness or 
the, he confirms the basis for your faith was well-founded. He shows himself to be reliable. Have you done that before? Where you were going through a trial in your life? You have the opportunity to do this all the time because faith is to not see what God's going to do. But you come to a trial. You come to a fork in the road, maybe. Some of you young people. You're navigating paths in life. You're not 100% sure which way is God leading me in this. So you pray about it. You say, Lord, can you give me some direction in this? Can you show me your path in this? Can you, can you point me in the way that would bring you honor and glory? Now, is God ever going to be able to direct and lead in your life, young people, if you're never even praying for him to give you direction? If you don't even have a desire for him to, delete, to lead and direct your life, is God going to then do it against your will? The answer is no. It's so easy to get caught up in our own plans. It's so easy to get caught up in the direction that we set for our lives, where we sit down and we try to figure out, well, this is the path that is going to give me a job and give me a family and provide me a mate and give me the house and give me the normal American dream. (laughs) The American dream. Even if you didn't know the Lord, you could see that that's never going to be the path that's going to provide you contentment and purpose. Being an adult isn't all that great. Young people are so desperate to speed things up and to get to all of those things. They're just anchors around your neck. They're hard. You get that house, oh, so great, I have my own place. Yeah, the paint's falling off of it, the plumbing's leaking, the rafters are squeaking, the rats and rodents are running through it. Some amens? We can praise the Lord for it, but when we're focused on this realm, this temporal realm, we've missed it altogether. God does provide for our needs and we celebrate him when he does, but it's not the things of this world and the accomplishments of the world that can provide us with any peace, joy, purpose, contentment, any give any meaning to our life. So young people, when you're focused on how you're going to follow in the footsteps of your parents and you're going to build your own adult life, you're so eager to get to adulting, ask yourself, where does God fit into this? Do I even have a concern or a thought process that would say, will you direct me in this? Will you give me some insights into how I should be going about this? Will you reveal your will for my life to me so that I could follow your direction for my life instead of just chasing after these things that I see everybody else consumed with? But it starts with to even have that desire. The second thing is then, are you going to prayerfully continuously go to the throne of grace that you may find mercy to help in time of need. That it's a time of need. If, if we don't, the, the choices that we make affect our lives. So if they're not Christ-led, Christ-directed, Spirit-led and, direct, and directed decisions, there's ramifications that come with that. Now I'm not necessarily saying that we have to hyper-spiritualize every, every minute de- decision that we make. What I'm saying, though, is that are we praying that God would generally direct us, give us direction, and and give us wisdom as we make decisions? Now, it could be about really small things, but certainly it should be about major things like, where am I going to live? Who should I marry? Who am I going to date? How am I going to date? Am I going to do it in a way that would bring you glory, Lord? Or am I going to do it the way that the world says is just perfectly fine and that everybody should do it that way? 
When, I, when it comes to the decision about how I'm going to spend my time, what I'm going to prioritize, am I going to pray about that and say, Lord, help me to give me, help me to have your vision. Help me to prioritize the things that you prioritize. But in the case of the shepherds here, they were interested in God's truth. He gave some to them. They wanted to respond to it. And they responded to it in faith. They trusted God. And they wanted to go check out his message. Go check out what he, uh, not, not the message because they accepted the message, but go find out more. Go see for themselves. Go meet this Savior of the world for themselves. They rushed to do it. And they found what they were looking for. Now imagine that. They had already accepted this in faith and they see here's the Savior of the world. Now I don't even know how I would process that. What I would think about that. But they had the opportunity to do that. They decided that for themselves. God didn't make them do it. But they hurried to Bethlehem to learn about the source of this great joy. And they had been told it was that the Savior was here. That was the source of this joy. So they decided to take God at his word and they went and they celebrated and they were the first to be there other than Mary and Joseph to celebrate the Savior's birth. My question is, when God presents his truth to you, will you respond to it in faith? Will you get excited about God revealing truth to you? Showing you something about himself? Giving you some guidance and instruction in your life? When God does that, will you celebrate that? And then race off to check it out for yourself, to apply it to your life, to take just a mere principle or a statement of truth and actually turn it into an application in your life where this is practically describing the way that you're going through life and addressing the circumstances that come your way. And that's really a challenging question. That's something that we don't naturally do, but these shepherds were a great example of that for us here. Now we keep going with the story because responding in faith to God's revealed truth, it changes lives. It changes lives. It doesn't just change your life, but it changes the lives of others around you too. When you respond in faith to God's truth, he says, I'm going to use that in your life. I'm going to use it to have a transforming effect in your thinking and in your, and then in your actions and your words that would come from that. As God changes your thinking or gets a hold of your thinking, then that's going to have an impact on the way you live life. You see, your manner of living isn't what is pulling the cart. It's your way of thinking that's pulling the cart. So when we put the manner of living in front of the way you're thinking, put the cart in front of the horse, as, as we say here in, in this country, you've got it backwards. The thinking has to go in front of the manner of living. The manner of living is just a byproduct of that thinking. And so... It changes your thinking, but as it changes your thinking, then it changes your life, your priorities, your perspective, the way that the things that you're focusing on, the things that you're investing in. But it also changes the lives of those around you. Let's keep reading verse 17. So in verse 17, after they'd seen the baby, the shepherds, now when they had heard, when they had seen him, sorry, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Did they hide their light under a bushel? Did they keep this to themselves? The answer is no, they made it known and they didn't just make it known a little bit, they made it widely known. So when you're patting yourself on the back that once every year you manage to share the good news about Jesus with somebody, it's really not much cause for celebration, though it still is a cause for some celebration. If one person could hear about Jesus through your willingness to let the Lord speak in your life or speak through you, if you'd have boldness just once a year 
to share the good news of Jesus, every person in the world would probably be saved if every person on the planet told just one person about this. But let's just take away people on the planet. Let's come back to just this church. If, if each one of us told just one person about the Savior every single year, every year of our lives, that'd be a lot of people, if we did the math, that would have been impacted for Jesus Christ. But God says, you're not here for an occasional willingness to spread my truth and to proclaim me and lift me up to the places and spaces I bring you, to shine my light into the darkness. That's your whole mission. That's your whole purpose for existing. And if that's your purpose for existing, not just one time a year, but every minute of every day, you're waking up with this perspective of, I'm here to shine God's light into the lives of people around me. And if that's your mentality, imagine what God would do with that. And that's the perspective that these shepherds had. They made this truth, this message of good news and hope about the Savior having come. They made it widely known. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. You see how it had an impact on them personally? But it had an impact on all those around them too, just like God wants to have an impact through us in other people's lives. Now, just this is sort of just thrown in there as an aside, but Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. But back to the shepherds, verse 20, then the shepherds returned home. It doesn't say home, but that's where they were, came from. Glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Think of the celebration that they had in le- learning about the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Seeing him with, his own, with their own eyes. Knowing that all of this pictures, all of this symbolism, all of these little hints that had been given throughout the Old Testament were pointing to this event in human history, and here he was. The Savior was here. Now, did they fully understand every aspect of it or every ramification of it? Did they understand every detail of what that meant and what would come from that? And that the Savior would be a suffering Savior? that he would be dying on a cross, that he would be buried and that he would rise again? How much of that did they fully understand? That's not the point. God expected man to respond to the truth that's been given to them or put in front of them. And they understood at a minimum, they understood that this was cause for great joy, that the long-promised Savior was here. And there were certainly a connotations that could have been drawn or made, whether people did make them or not. There was plenty to be pointed back to that this is the one who would be the Savior who would die in the place of the guilty, that he would be the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, and we'll see him introduced that way down the, down the road. But that could have, you know, what they understood about this exactly, I guess that's a separate discussion, but it was still cause for great joy, and it was a cause for great celebration. Put yourself in their place. Imagine seeing the very face of God. Many others got this opportunity, got behind here on this, but many others got this opportunity because as Jesus walked on the earth and lived among men, set up his tent among men, many got to see him. And in seeing him, they saw the face of God because he was God. He was indivisible from God. He was the unique God-man, but he was the Son of God that was a part of the triune Godhead, all 
the same and equal, but at the same time have different, different functions, different responsibilities and roles, but being one undivided God. So Jesus addressed this with his disciples when he says, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? What an amazing opportunity that everybody, starting with Mary and Joseph first, after Mary and Joseph, then the shepherds, this was the beginning of a long line of people who got to see God with their own eyes. Now, there was others who God appeared to, but never in this way where they could look at him directly, live with him directly, respond to him directly, hold his hands, lean their heads on his, on his chest, eat food with him, dine with him, work with him, toil with him, minister with him, sleep next to him, row boats with him, walk alongside of him. It's mind-boggling, really, to think about how much that would change your life to, to see that, to be able to do that. Now the question is this, to our time, to our day, you have the opportunity to do that too. Just not in the exact same way. God's very Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Spirit of the Father, the Holy Spirit, however you want to refer to it, it's referred to in all of those ways in the Word of God. But God's Spirit lives inside of you. At this point, he didn't live inside of the shepherds. They got to see the face of God. But you have God himself living inside of you. I'd say you actually have a step up on anyone else in all of the rest of human history. You have the opportunity every day to respond in faith and live life with as directed by God's Spirit. You have the opportunity to walk by means of the Spirit as directed and influenced by the Spirit. The only thing that, your only choice in it really is are you going to depend and yield yourself to him? Are you going to trust him? Are you going to get your focus on the Lord, get your focus on a vertical plane, looking to eternal things so that God, as he has a hold of your thinking, then he can work through his spirit in your life? That's living life with God. Are you going to include him in your thinking, include him in your decisions, take him with you to the places that you go? That's living life with God. You have the opportunity to do that. You have the opportunity to do that for much longer than this brief experience that the shepherds had. Every moment of every day, if you're a child of God, you have the opportunity to live life with him, to see his face, in a sense, as he works in your life. And there's no one to blame for not seeing him other than yourself for choosing not to depend and rely and trust him and keep your eyes on eternal things, to fill your mind with the things of faith, to renew your mind with the word of God and the teaching from God's word. As you do that, you'll see God. You'll see him for who he is. You'll learn more about him. He'll become more real to you. And you'll have the effect of truly living life with God. But in any event, this was life-changing for them and it was life-changing for others. Now, was the joy that was experienced through Christ's birth limited to the shepherds? And the answer is no. The first we could look at is the reaction of the wise men who came to see Jesus perhaps as much as two years later. Matthew 2, 9 through 10, when they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. This idea that excitement, joy, happiness, celebration would accompany 
the coming of the Lord, the Savior of the world, and that it would be impactful on all people, not just some people, but on all people. And it starts here, the part of the all here, you have the wise men, and they haven't even seen Jesus yet. But look at this attitude that they have about just the prospect of meeting him. Could you say it in any stronger terms than they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy? And you have to ask yourself, is that the response that I have to the prospect of meeting God in my life? See, he wants to meet me right where I'm at. He lives inside of me. In a sense, I have, again, every moment of day, I have the opportunity to sort of meet him, greet him, embrace him, to seek after those things, to let him have his way with me, to draw closer to him, lean into him. I have, the op- I have the opportunity to do that. Do I have great joy, exceedingly great joy, that the opportunity, just the mere opportunity to meet him, to live life with him in those moments? These wise men did, and we don't know the full, we don't know the full story. We don't know what they understood. We don't know how much they had studied or, or where, what all they brought to the table in their minds when they came to this circumstance, but this still was their reaction just at the possibility of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to go beyond the shepherds, to go beyond the wise men, how did Jesus' birth bring joy to all the world? Because that was the ultimate proclamation from verse 10, is that I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So we'll go through this relatively quickly, but Remember, the angel said good news and great joy for all people. That includes you. Now, there's several different ways that Christ's birth brought joy to all mankind. There's more than we'd be able to cover here this morning. But you have to start with the primary purpose for his coming. See, his, his incarnation resulted in his redemptive work for all mankind. That's how the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior, brought joy to all people. His incarnation, his coming to earth, his being born as a unique God-man with the capability then of dying in the place of sinners, that brought joy to all men. He redeemed, it set up, it set in place this final redemption that would happen through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you think about this is a primary purpose for his coming. Now, did he also at the same time, did he come with an offer of a tangible, physical, earthly kingdom to the nation of Israel? And the answer is yes. At the same time, though, he knew in advance that they would not accept him and, that, and thus they would not accept that kingdom and so that that would be postponed and delayed. But knowing that, God also had this plan in eternity past where he was going to redeem mankind. He was going to die in the place of sinners. And that is ultimately spoken of in many different passages that that is ultimately what Christ knew his birth would result in. That was his purpose even for coming. You could say that. Now, would you have to say it's the primary purpose? I think you could, at minimum, you'd say it's a primary purpose for his coming. I would say it's the primary purpose for his coming, though, because of his understanding of how man would respond to him. And so, however you say that, there's several verses I want to flash through here with you that talk about this. This is a faithful saying, Paul says to Timothy, and it's worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. 
It doesn't say this is the reason he died. It says this is the reason he came. This is the very reason that he came to save sinners. And see, absent his coming in as a unique God-man, he could never have died in the place of sinners. It's the, hum- it's the humanity part of that incarnate, unique Emmanuel God with us that was able to then die in the place of sinners. So God had to alter his form in a sense in a, in a way that was unique to history so that he could die in the place of sinners. You see, John talk about this in John one twenty nine. He's speaking of John the Baptist's response or reaction to seeing Jesus for the first time or coming towards him. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if it didn't say sin of the world, it just said sins of the nation of Israel. You could say this is just purely a reference to his being the Messiah or the Redeemer that the nation of Israel was looking for to in promise in a keeping of the promises that God had covenant made in his covenants with Abraham. But this says the Lamb of God, just even that symbolism, the Lamb of God, the spotless, perfect Lamb of God. Now, the only connotation between lambs as we build our history up to this point is that they were the vehicle or the mechanism of substitutionary death in the place of those who were guilty. So this is God's special lamb who will take away the sin of the world. That's how he's introduced by John the Baptist before he even really starts the rest of his earthly ministry. John says this in 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son. Now, this is talking about the reason that he came. This is why the Son of God came. He sent his Son. How did he send him? As a baby. So he sent his Son as a baby to then grow up to one day be the Savior who would die in the place of sinners, to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfying payment for our sins. 1 John 2.2 says, And he himself, Jesus, is the satisfying payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see, this had to have a lot bigger context. It included all mankind. This is good news and great joy that will be to all people, all of the world, and that that was satisfied by Christ's birth. Ultimately, I guess his death, but it started with his birth. He had to come in order then to die in the place of sinners. So that's one very important way that Jesus' birth brought joy to all the world. Understanding this should be a cause for celebration. It's so many people, they limit or they have such a small reaction to this truth. But it should be something that fills us with inexpressible joy. First Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen you love, speaking of Jesus, though now you do not see him yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is our response to seeing God's love. This should be our response to seeing God's love. By believing, accepting God, taking God at his word, it should cause us then, having accepted his substitutionary death on our behalf, having accepted the rescue that he offers, having put our confidence in his ability to provide and do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which was to solve the debt or pay the debt, satisfy the debt that we owed, which was death for sin, by dying in our place, realizing that having, having fully paid our debt, there was nothing left for us to do other than accept as a free gift gift what God had already done for us. As we see that he 
fully paid, fully satisfied, fully propitiated our debt and our the death that we were facing to satisfy that, to die in our place, that should cause us to be full of joy that is inexpressible. And I know I can be honest about it. I don't always feel that way. But the Christian should never cease to be filled with joy in seeing and having believed in the provision that God made to rescue him. And so when the gospel message starts to become old news to you, that's not a good sign. Now we know that although this should have been a cause for celebration for all mankind, God's incarnation that would lead to his redemption, that even though it should be a cause for great celebration, unfortunately mankind was largely disinterested in the joy that came to the world through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. John says that in John three nineteen, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. How did that happen? As a baby being born in a stable in a manger. That's how it happened. The incarnation of Jesus Christ. So he came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, I'm not going to go to any passages on this, but you think of other ways that Jesus' birth brings joy to all of the world. His His earthly ministry brought immediate and practical joy to many lives. Now, you're going to have to just mentally, for the sake of time, you're going to have to just go through uh, and picture some of the ways that Jesus' birth ultimately ended up bringing practical and immediate joy to people's lives. His entire ministry was filled with those types of events. Think about the first miracle that he performed. What was the first miracle that Jesus performed? Well, he turned water into wine at a wedding celebration. In a very small way, he brought great joy to a group of people just by that miracle that he performed at that wedding. He healed people who were lame. He gave sight to those who were blind. He cured those who were sick. He cured those who were diseased of various different kinds. He cast out demons. He brought back people from the dead. Can you imagine the joy on the face of the widow of Nain whose grown son was raised from the dead during a funeral procession? He brought immediate joy in some tangible ways to those that got to live life with him in that moment, in that time. So that was cause of bringing joy to all the world. Other ways that Jesus' birth brought joy to all of the world. His presence among men brought relational joy through present in-person fellowship with him. There were people who got to have fellowship with him in person. And we know that the Bible says that you will show me the path of life, Psalm sixteen eleven. in your presence is fullness of joy. Now that's not talking about physical presence. That's talking about spiritual closeness to God living life with him mentally, spiritually. But these got to, there were those that got to experience that joy that was associated with being present with God where God is present. You see, joy is naturally going to be present anytime God is present because he is the source of real joy. So you see that these things I have spoken to you, John is quoting Jesus. He's speaking to his followers that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. 
He's with them as he's speaking that to them. Now he's talking primarily about spiritual joy, but he's, they're also having joy that is being experienced just by being with him. Romans fifteen thirteen says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. Who is the source of joy? God. So when these individuals got to live life with him, be in his physical presence, they experienced joy. And many, many people got to get in on that during Christ's earthly ministry. Now, you think of other ways that Jesus' birth brought joy to all the world. Part of that is that his spirit produces joy in the believer's life. If Christ hadn't come, then we wouldn't presently be indwelt by his spirit. The Old Testament saint was not continuously indwelt by God's spirit. But when God left to go to prepare a place for us, when Jesus left, he said, I'm not going to leave you empty. I'm going to send my spirit to be a comforter, to live inside of you, to indwell you until I come again. Well, did that provide joy to all the world? Yeah, to many, many believers in their lives, having the Spirit of God living inside of you, that produced joy because one of the fruits of the Spirit was the fruit of the Spirit is love and the second one listed is joy. That that's what God's Spirit produces in our lives. And that's true where we can have that joy knowing that God is with us, that he never leaves us or forsakes us, that Jesus' Spirit will will never fail us, will never let us down, never leave us on our own, never abandon us. That gives us the ability to have joy even in the face of difficult trials and circumstances. So in that sense, Christ's birth, it brought joy to all of the world and in that immediate context, especially believers. And so as we think about joy to the world, Jesus brought joy to the world in his first coming to earth as a baby. Now, I'll end by spoiling something for you here, if you didn't know it. This joy to the world isn't actually, the song joy to the world, isn't actually really even talking about Christ's first coming. The author of the song had Christ's second coming in mind when he was writing the song. It became a very famous and very popular Christmas song. But, and it's true. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. His coming to earth brought great joy. It brought joy to all men, glad tidings of great joy to all men. And so that's why we we use that as a way to think through even Christ's birth and his coming and how that would bring joy to people's lives. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that Christ is going to come again. And that's actually what the author of the song had in mind. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. The next time he comes, he will bring joy to the world again when he he comes and he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. That's what we have to look forward to. And because he came the first time, it allowed us the opportunity to put our trust and our faith in him and to live life with him in time, knowing that we have the opportunity to live all of the rest of eternity with him. That we can truly celebrate this time of the year knowing that this was life-changing. The fact that Jesus was born, the fact that Jesus died, the fact that Jesus made it possible for us to live life with him and left his spirit to live inside of us, the fact that Jesus promised that he would come again and that we would spend all of eternity with him if we would just put our faith in his son. So I hope that as you hear this, you're reminded that when we have this holiday season, there's a lot of things to in the temporal realm, to have joy about. 
Some of them I can see right here today as some of your relatives that live a distance away are home visiting. I won't call and embarrass any of you uh, personally, but I see a few of you here that aren't living in the area anymore. That's great joy. That's great cause for celebration. Sometimes there are physical things that you've been looking forward to and a part of Christmas is that in this country anyway, there's generally gifts that are exchanged between people. Can a child, can you have joy to receive something that you've been looking forward to? Has your spouse maybe put some thought, maybe the joys that they put a little bit of thought into getting you something? Maybe the joys that they actually got you something you wanted? I know that's a difficult challenge. But that's just passing, fleeting, temporary joy. I hope that as we went through this here this morning, you were reminded that any lasting joy, any eternal joy that's associated with this season is only there because it's associated with Jesus Christ. Who exactly he is, what he's done for us, how much he loves us, what we mean to him, and how he's made it possible for us to live an abundant life that's filled with his joy each and every day if we would just include him in our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we could spend together. Pray that this would have been encouraging to those who heard it. Pray that we would have our eyes and our focus on you all of the year, not just during the holiday season, but the holiday season has been so commercialized that it's so easy to just lose track of what the real meaning of the season is. So pray that throughout the year, but especially this time of year, we wouldn't get distracted by that, but we would actually celebrate you, celebrate what the season means, and we would use it as opportunities to encourage our own hearts, but also to spread your good news to those around us as we do have opportunities to spend with family and friends. Pray that we would use those opportunities not just to uh, retell tell about what we got for gifts, but to tell about the greatest gift that was ever given, your indescribable gift. In Jesus' name, amen.